right. Well, if you've been tracking with us over the last uh, month or so, you know we're doing a series on First and Second Thessalonians. And so today we're going to be looking at First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So if you have your Bible, and I, I hope you do, please turn there with me. First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Last week, Pastor John talked about the day of the Lord, and he looked at the passage right before this one. Looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And I love the point that he made, that the day of the Lord is, for Christians, it's primarily relational. It's primarily that we will be with Christ forever. Now, so many Christians think about the day of the Lord and the return of Christ, and they try to dissect it, and they're like, okay, is it going to be like pre-trib, post-trib, middle-trib? And like, it's just like, come on, you know? The, the, the point in Scripture is that when Christ returns... His people, those who've trusted in him, will be with him forever. That's an incredible hope and confidence that we have. That as we look at a world filled with suffering, filled with tragedy and death, that those things are not the final answer. This world, this material world is not all there is. Christ will have the final word on the human condition. And for those who've trusted in him, we will be with him forever. That's an incredible, incredible hope that we can hold on to. Uh, but unfortunately, not everybody will turn to God. Not everybody is going to respond to Christ and accept the gospel. And so there's another element to this day of the Lord. And we see it very clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. I'm going to bring it up here on the big screen so you don't have to turn there. But it says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On that day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. And so on one hand, those who've trusted in Christ, when Christ returns, they will be with him forever. They will be delivered. They will have joy forever. But for those who haven't, for those who have rejected the knowledge of God, who've turned away from God, who refuse to obey the gospel, they will be shut out of God's presence. The implication of that is that in this life we all experience the presence of God somewhat. All of us, even non-Christians, experience some of the presence of God. All the good things that we enjoy, everything that makes life worth livable, worth enjoyable, comes from God. That's what the Bible teaches. And so the day of the Lord is a day when, for those who've trusted in Christ, that, that sense of God's presence that we have somewhat here will be perfected. We'll see Christ face to face. It'll be this incredible sense of God's presence. And so all the good stuff that you've experienced here will be magnified a millionfold, being in God's presence. But for those who haven't, who haven't trusted in Christ, who haven't turned to God, there will be this, they will be irreconcilably cut off from that, that sense of God's presence. That's what this passage is saying. They'll be cut off. All those good things will be, will be ended for them. And so that's, I think that forms the background of the passage we're going to look at today. I want you to keep that in mind, this day of the Lord. 
In the passage we look at, Paul doesn't explicitly say what the day of the Lord is going to be like, but I want us to remember, for those of us who trust in Christ, it's a day of deliverance, a day of joy, but those who don't, it's a day of being shut out, a day of justice and punishment. So let's look, verse 1 of chapter 5. Now brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. So the reason Paul is addressing this is because the Thessalonians have written him, it seems like they've written him a letter asking him this question, Paul, when is the day of the Lord going to come? When is this day going to come? And the reason that I think that and a lot of scholars think that they're asking this question is because Paul starts this letter by saying now. Now about times and dates or now concerning times and dates. And that was a way that people back then would would respond to a question that somebody had written them. So if you wrote a letter to somebody, and they got that letter, and they'd saw it, and they'd say, okay, and they'd, they'd go through your questions, and they'd say, okay, now concerning this point that you raised, here's my answer. And then now concerning this point, here's my answer. And so it seems like the Thessalonians have written a letter to Paul, and they're saying, Paul, when is this day of the Lord going to come? And Paul says, okay, here's my answer. Now about times and dates, and he, he gives his answer. And it's important, I think, to notice that these Thessalonians are not they're not writing this question to Paul out of kind of an abstract curiosity. Right? They're not sitting around saying, hey, when do you think the day of the Lord's going to come? And somebody's like, well, I, I think it'll be in six months. And someone else is like, no, two years. Right to Paul. You know, Paul knows. We'll, we'll get the, real answer, the right answer. Uh, that's not what they're doing. Okay? They are in the midst of severe, severe persecution. Intense persecution against them because they're Christians. Uh, and at this time in the Roman Empire... Almost every major city had, had patron gods. These are gods that people believed watched over your city and took care of your city. And so if people in the city worship the gods and offer sacrifices and do things that please the gods, then the gods will they'll send rain, uh, they'll prosper your businesses, they'll, you know, they'll help you in war and that kind of stuff. But if you don't honor the gods in the way they want, if you don't sacrifice to them and do the stuff they want, then they could bring destruction on your city. They might, you know, bring plagues and, you know, uh, recession and warfare and all that kind of stuff. And so you could believe in any god you wanted. It's not like they said, oh, you can't believe in, in certain gods. You can believe in any god you want as long as you also worship and honor these patron gods of your city. And in the city of Thessalonica, the patron gods were Aphrodite and Dionysus. And so you have to worship these two gods and you have to honor them. Otherwise, people get upset at you because they think that, you know, these gods are going to get ticked off at the city. And so that puts Christians in a pretty tough spot here. Okay, because they they don't believe you can just add Jesus on to the pantheon. They believe that he is the only God. He's the only way. And so imagine yourself as a Christian in this city and, and... you know, the neighbor's like, okay, let's go. Let's go on up to the temple to worship. You know, there's this big feast for Aphrodite, and we're going to go worship and offer sacrifices. And you're like, ah, you know, I'm not feeling real good. Can't make it this year. And then your extended family's like, hey, we're going to go up to the temple of Dionysus, and we're going to offer these sacrifices, and then we're going to have a big, like, reunion. Because people would do that. They'd have a big party afterward. We're going to have a party. We're going to have a reunion, you know, a big, we're going to, you know, do a cookout. And you're like, no, you know, I'm just not really up for it. And after a while, people are like, dude, why aren't you going? Why aren't you worshiping these gods? And you're like, well, 
I'm a Christian. I don't believe in these gods. I believe in Jesus. And people don't take that very well. And after a while, when bad things happen, because bad things happen to all of us, and so when bad things start happening, somebody's business goes under, uh, you know, the rains don't come in time, what do people, who do people look at to blame? They say, you know what, those stupid Christians, they're not worshiping Aphrodite. That's why my business went under. That's why the rains haven't come. That's why we're having famine, whatever. And so the Christians take the blame for that, and they start getting persecuted for that. And people are like, you will worship these gods or else, kind of thing. And so that's the condition for these Thessalonian Christians. And Paul, he even admits this at the beginning of his letter in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. He says that you guys believed in spite of severe sufferings. So Paul acknowledges this. He says, you guys are suffering severely, but you believed in Christ. And so they're writing and they're like, Paul, when is Christ going to come? We believe, okay, we believe that he's the king, that he's the savior, but when is he going to come and save us? When is he going to come and set up his kingdom? Because things are really tough and, and we're having a hard time here. And Paul basically says, it's the same as what I told you before. Christ will come. But it will be suddenly, and it will be by surprise. We don't know when it's going to happen. It will be suddenly, and it will be by surprise. Like a thief coming in the night. And when people are saying peace and safety and everything's great, in the middle of that, Christ is going to come, and there will be destruction for those who aren't ready. And this phrase, peace and safety, was a common phrase back then. Uh, it was a common expression because at this time in history, the Roman Empire had been peaceful and safe and prosperous for over 100 years. They called it the Pax Romana. It was, it was a great time in Roman history. Things were going well. There, there, was, there was warfare at the edge of the empire, but within the empire, there's no warfare. They wiped out the bandits. They wiped out the pirates. Things are great. Uh, the Roman government has built major roads between the cities, and so there's great uh, transportation and commerce, and people are prospering, and things are great. And so in that context, Paul comes along and is like, hey, guys, um, Jesus is coming, and the world's going to end. And people are like, what? Like, this Jewish guy is going to come and bring the world to an end? Like, come on, man. Like, things are great. Things have been great for a long time. What are you talking about? I think that's very relevant to our, our day and our culture. I mean, you know, people, things are good here. Let's be honest. I know there's a recession, but overall, things are good. Overall, people are fairly prosperous. Overall, we don't experience warfare. Uh, you know, we celebrate Memorial Day, but most of us have not experienced warfare. I know there's warfare going on in other sides of the world, but we don't feel that for the most part. We feel safe secure, prosperous, and when you try to tell somebody, hey, uh, Jesus is going to come back and bring human history to an end, they're like, what? Like, Dude, what are you smoking? I mean, come on. I, really? Like, some Jewish guy from 2,000 years ago is going to return and bring the world to it? That's weird. Come on. Get real. Yeah, Paul says, he makes it clear, the end will come. Jesus will return, and he will return suddenly and by surprise, and just as labor is the natural end of pregnancy, but you can't, you can't predict exactly when it's going to happen, so too Christ's return is the natural end of human history. Pregnancy doesn't last forever. All you moms are saying, thank God for that. <laughs> In the same way, human history, as we know, it will not last forever. Christ will return, but many will be caught by surprise. And I had a taste of this recently. Uh, as many of you know, my wife, Amy, gave birth to our third son about a month ago, and it was, it was an exciting experience, but honestly, I was kind of caught by surprise, and I shouldn't have been, okay? We've had two boys already. I know how the process works. I saw Amy's 
tummy getting bigger and bigger over nine months, and, and she even went a week overdue, so I should have known that any day the baby's coming. And I did know intellectually, but it just didn't feel real to me. I just kind of got used to having a, a pregnant wife and two boys, and I just kind of thought, that's, that's kind of how my family's going to be, you know? I just, I got used to it. And so one night, I come home, and, and Amy says, it's time. I say, oh, time for what? You know, dinner time? It sounds good. Says, no, like, you know, it's time. The baby's coming. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, oh, man, what are we going to do? Where are you going to go? And she's like, well, go to the hospital. Thank God for hospitals. That's right. We have those now. And then it's, oh, oh wait, we have two other boys. What are they going to do? What are we going to do with them? And she's like, well, you know, we'll call the people on our, our babysitter list. We'll find somebody. It's like, oh, good. Okay. You know, I, I, I knew intellectually all these things, but I just, it didn't feel real. I felt very surprised. In the same way, the day of the Lord will catch people by surprise. They, they should be ready. They'll, they'll know things about it. And some people will know intellectually that Jesus will come, but they, many people will be caught by surprise. They won't be ready. Verse 4. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. And so here Paul begins to draw this contrast between people of the light and people of the darkness. And he starts by saying that people of darkness are in darkness. They can't see. If you're in the darkness physically, you, you can't see. You don't know what's going on. If you're in the darkness spiritually, you can't see spiritual reality. You don't understand spiritual things. And he also says that not only are they in darkness, but they're asleep. If you're asleep physically, you're not alert to what's going on around you. If you're asleep spiritually, you're not alert to sin. You're not alert to spiritual reality. You don't have an eternal perspective. You don't see things from an eternal perspective. So they're in darkness, they're asleep. And then he goes on, he says, they're drunk. If you're drunk, you're definitely not alert. But it's not quite, not quite the same as being asleep. Because if somebody is asleep, we don't necessarily blame them if something happens and they're not alert to it. If things are going on around them and they're like, well, I was sleeping, we're like, okay, you know. That's understandable, but if you're drunk, then you're culpable. You're responsible for not being alert. And choosing to get drunk results in having your reason darkened. You can't, you can't understand things very well. You can't see the big picture. You can't see the consequences for your behavior. That's why people do stuff when they're drunk that they wouldn't do when they're sober, because they just can't quite grasp how it's going to end up, what the consequences are going to be. And they're under the control of alcohol. They're under an external control. They're not self-controlled. They don't control themselves. And so they do stupid stuff. It's easy to do stupid stuff if you're drunk. And if you do something really stupid and you get, you get arrested and you stand before the judge, I think you can legitimately say to the judge, you can say, Judge, you know what? I did not know what I was doing. I, I, hadn't, I, did, I just didn't know what I was doing. I was not in control. That was like, it was like there's another person out there. It's like it wasn't me. So it's not my fault, judge. And he'll say, well, I, I believe you that you did not know what you were doing and you were not in control of yourself. 
But you are responsible for your behavior because you chose to get, to get drunk. You chose to do that. You're culpable. In the same way, rejecting God and immersing yourself in the sinful things of this world leads to spiritual drunkenness. It darkens your spiritual understanding. It limits your, your eternal perspective. You can't see the full consequences of your sins. Not only that, but you, you come under the control of your sinful desires and under the control of Satan. That's what the Bible says. And people like this, if they are that way when God returns, I believe that many of them will stand before God at the judgment and they'll say, God, I didn't know what was going on. Like, I did not understand everything. I, I just, I, I wasn't even in control. Like, there was these desires controlling me. And I think God will acknowledge that. And he'll say, yeah, I know. I know you didn't fully understand what was going on. I know you weren't in control. But you're culpable for your blindness and slavery to sin because you rejected me, the source of light. So then Paul says, now, for you Thessalonian Christians, you're not children of darkness. You're children of light. You're not in the darkness anymore. You're not going to be surprised when the day of the Lord comes. You'll be ready for that. You'll be ready because you're alert and you're self-controlled. Self-controlled just means you're sober. You're not drunk. You're alert and you're sober. And the reason for that is that you have turned to God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. We're going to have it up here, I think. It says that for they themselves, other Christians, report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so Paul says, because you've turned to God, you're no longer immersed in the things of this world. You're no longer under the control of your sinful desires. You're no longer under the control of Satan. You're, you're aware of spiritual realities. You have an eternal perspective. You see the big picture from God's perspective. And he says that you're soldiers armed with faith and love and hope. Faith and love is a breastplate. Hope of salvation is a helmet. And uh, I think here he's talking not just about soldiers, but primarily about night watchmen. At this time in, in the Roman Empire, they would have, uh, every city, major cities would have night watchmen. And they were a little bit, they were more lightly armed than soldiers. They didn't carry all the armor, but they would have a helmet and a breastplate. And their primary duty was to stand watch at night. And they would watch for fires. Uh, they would watch for, for thieves, for burglars. And they would watch for like drunken brawls and that kind of stuff. And they'd try to go, go, go separate people. That was their primary goal. Fires, thieves, and, and drunken fighters. But they would also watch for the sun. Because when the sun would rise, that's when they're done. That's the end of their shift. They can go home and go to sleep. And so Paul is kind of applying that to Christians. And he's saying, I want you guys to stand firm. I want you to be on guard. Be on guard for things that could tempt you, that could, that could uh, you know, knock you over, suffering, persecution. Be ready for that. Be aware of that. Alert people to things that are going on. Alert people to spiritual issues. I want you to be standing guard. But also be watching for the Son. For the Son. Jesus. Because when he returns, that will bring the true day. And you are people of the day. You're people of the light. When Christ returns, that will be your deliverance. That will be the end of your uh, your duty, you're being on guard for that. Another way to think about this, I think, is to use a, a metaphor of a sinking cruise ship. And uh, maybe it won't be helpful, but I hope it, hope it does help a little bit. Uh, imagine that you're on a cruise ship, and uh, it's in the middle of the night, and this ship hits an iceberg in the middle of the night. 
And it doesn't hit it very hard. Uh, it, nobody feels, you know, nobody feels the thud. But it, it hits it hard enough that it damages the ship enough that the ship will sink. It's going to sink. It's inevitable. The only hope is for people to evacuate ship. But nobody realizes what happened. Nobody's aware. A lot of people are sleeping. A lot of people are partying and getting drunk and, and, and eating at the buffet tables. And, and even the captain and, and the people who should be in the control room, they aren't. They're sleeping or they're doing whatever. They're not there. The only people who are aware of the problem is the Coast Guard. Because the Coast Guard has satellites and, and you know, they're alerted right away when this happens. And so they know that this is a problem. They know that the ship has to be evacuated. And, and the major problem is that the nearest Coast Guard vessel is far enough away that it will not reach this cruise ship until the, the ship is literally sliding down into the water. And so there won't be time for an evacuation. And so what the ship has to do is evacuate right now. And so on the radio, they're trying to get somebody's attention. They're trying to, to find somebody on the ship. And they're saying, you know, they're, they're trying to get people's attention. Nobody's responding. So finally, one of the Coast Guard gets into a helicopter and he flies out to the ship. And he gets out and he begins to tell people. He's warning people. He's saying, you guys are in grave danger. You've got to get out of the ship right now. And a lot of people are sleeping. They're like, dude, just what are you talking about? Let me sleep, you know? And he goes to the people who are drinking and partying. And they're like, man, dude, you're really tense. What's wrong with you? We're not sinking, you know? The, uh, things look fine to me. Well, yeah, come on, have a drink, sit down, relax. And, and nobody's listening to him. And finally, he gets a couple people who will listen. And as, as he gets back into the helicopter, they gather around him, this, this small band of believers. And he says, okay, guys, you have a few hours still before the ship sinks. And so I want you to spend the rest of the night going throughout the boat, trying to alert people to this problem. Try to get their attention. Try to help them believe that the ship is sinking. Go to the sleepers. Go to everybody. Get their attention. Wake people up. But don't wait too long. When the dawn comes, when you see that sun begin to rise over the horizon, you need to gather on the deck and you need to get in the lifeboats and set out. Don't wait too long. And so as he, as he leaves, he flies away, uh, they, they gather together and they, they feel faith, they trust what he said, they trust in him. They feel love, they feel love for him, for him coming, but they also love each other. They become kind of a little community overnight, you know, real quick, they become real close. And they have hope. They believe that if they follow his instructions, they will be saved. And so they go, they spend the rest of the night going through the boat, trying to get people. They go to, you know, to people's cabins, they're waking people up, they're going to the, you know, where people are, are gambling and dancing and drinking, and they're going to the buffet bar, and they're going everywhere, trying to get people to, to be alert to what's going to happen. And finally, as the dawn comes and the sun begins to rise, they gather on the deck of the ship, they get into those lifeboats, and they set out. And as that cruise ship is sinking down into the water, the Coast Guard vessel arrives. And it gathers together the survivors of that, that shipwreck. And I think that that, it's not a perfect metaphor, but I think it represents what we're doing here. I'm, we're not supposed to get out of the world. Don't try to become Amish because of this sermon. Uh, you know, enjoy the good things of this world. I'm not saying that you have to be anxious and paranoid all the time. Enjoy the good things that God's blessed us with. But remember that we can't identify too closely with this world system because it's passing away. We're not citizens of this earth. We're citizens of heaven. We're citizens of a new kingdom. And we're watching for that king. We're, we're waiting for it. We're putting our hope in it. And we're telling others about that kingdom. That's our goal and that's our purpose here. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake 
or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. So Paul is saying that the way to grow in faith and love and hope is to remember that we have not been appointed for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Thessalonians, as I said before, they're suffering. They're having a hard time of it. And some of them are beginning to wonder, is God angry with us? Is God angry with me? Am I experiencing God's wrath right now? And Paul is writing and he says, no, you are not experiencing God's wrath. We know from scripture that God uses sufferings to train and to discipline Christians, but he never uses it to punish us. He never pours out his wrath on his chosen people, on those who truly believe. Ultimately, he's always working for our supreme good. And our destiny is eternal joy. It's not eternal separation. And the reason we know that that is true, the reason that that is a promise that we can can stake our lives on, is that Christ died for us. That for us is key there. He died in our place. He took our, the consequences of our sins. He took God's wrath on our behalf. On behalf of those who trust in him, he suffered in our place. And that's the heart of the gospel. A holy God's desire to live forever with these sinful human beings that he loves. And so to satisfy his his holy justice, and yet his love, God absorbs his own wrath on our behalf. That's why as Christians, we don't have to fear God's wrath when we die or when Christ returns, because Christ took God's wrath for us at the cross. He died for us. And now nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. Even death is now our servant Because it ushers us directly into the presence of Jesus. And if Christ returns before we die, then we'll be with him also forever. And that's how Paul says that we're to encourage each other. And build each other up when we get discouraged. By remembering this glorious truth about our eternal destiny and the purpose of our existence. That nothing can separate us from Christ's love. As long as we're on earth, we have a relationship with him. And we are being used by him in this incredible kingdom purpose and when we die or when he returns we'll be with him forever let's pray father i pray that you would take this passage of scripture lord and, and really illuminate it to us help us to be alert and ready for your coming Help us to be a people of light to those around us who are still in darkness, to help them to turn to you and and have their eyes open to the truth and and, uh, be able to live in the the goodness of the love of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be secure in our salvation, knowing that Christ died for us. We thank you, Lord, for your promises, that they're true and they're trustworthy. You will return. You will have the final word over human history and our destiny. We thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen.